On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menas, and joining me, we have a special guest, Trent Copeland. How are you, Trent? Going well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So you've been plying your trade for New South Wales all season. You've played three tests for Australia, but you're an experienced podcaster, so you really <laughs> fit the mould for this show perfectly. Um, I want to go back to your test debut. Just run me through your first over because you got off to a pretty good start. Well, uh, first of all, you don't dream – when you dream up of, you know, getting presented a baggy green, it, it certainly wasn't in the forefront of my mind that it would be in Gaul in Sri Lanka uh, <laughs> as a seam bowler being presented by Doug Walters. Uh, Doug, so Doug presented you, Cap? Yes, he did. He was there on a tour group uh, leading them all around, great having man. a great time. And, uh, yeah, presented me with the baggy and – yeah, the first over, we batted first, which gave me a little bit of a chance to get into the atmosphere of test cricket, which was, you know, good experience. Uh, got a couple of runs, hit, hit my first ball for four. Hit your first well, ball for four? Yeah, and then it rapidly went downhill from there. And uh, same with the, the bowling, you know, whilst you say the first over was a good one, first over, first ball, opening the bowling, Ryan Harris had opened at the other end, uh, bowled the second over, Tilak Ratna Dilshan on strike, all our bowling plans were don't give him any width. My first ball in test cricket, wide half volley, smashed to the boundary for four and I was looking for any hole that I could find to try and crawl into and not bowl again. <laughs> Did uh, you look at your skipper? It would have been Michael Clark. It was, yeah. And then thankfully the second ball, whilst I'd love to say and probably in about 10 years when I talk about it, it'll go down as oh, the beautiful outswinger that did Dilshan all ends up. But second ball in test cricket was still wide, still full, but thankfully he hit it in the air in the region of Ricky Ponting and he took a scream over catch and I was on my way. A wicket with your second ball in test cricket. You must have been pretty cock-a-hoop, but, I mean, one of your teammates outdid you in that that inning. So Nathan Lyon also mm. made his test debut in the same test you did and he took a wicket with his first ball. Yeah. So that were you just like... Gary, I mean, what, what, he's upstaged you. Not at all. I was stoked at the time because it was getting Sangakara out. <laughs> which was going to be bowl to him. Yeah, which was going to be hard work that entire test series. So it's funny, you know, the GOAT, as he's now called, we made our debut in the same game. And all I can think of now at times when I'm talking about that moment is, geez, what could have been for me? Yeah, well, you made 400 test wickets later. I think you, what you gave up keeping and took up fast bowling, maybe you should have taken up off spin. Yeah, maybe I should have. But it was great. Uh, not only did we make our debuts in that game together, but we had played a lot of cricket coming from the country, New South Wales together, the Western zone. And it was just exceptional. We were both pinching ourselves that we were there playing alongside the likes of, you know, Johnson, Harris, Watson, Clark, Hussey, Ponting, you know, and calling them teammates. It was incredible. It must have been incredible. And we're going to get into a little few of your experiences a bit later on. I just want to, in this podcast, look at the first one-day international between Australia and England. 
I also want to talk about Australia's World Cup defence. I think it's already in jeopardy, but very early doors. And then I'm going to ask you some things about some current issues in cricket. But let's start with the first one-day international at the MCG. Australia made 304 for eight off 50 overs. Aaron Finch made 104. Mitch Marsh, 50. Uh, Marcus Stoinis, 60. I thought the the total always looked a bit short um, when you sort of consider how aggressive England are. But they've reshaped the middle order and they've taken out some of the experience that was in Australia's middle order. My first question to you is, do you think someone like George Bailey was discarded too quickly from the national setup? Well, that's a that's a hard question to say yes or no to. But uh, at the end of the day, some time in people's careers, there's a decision that has to be made on them. And, and his record in one-day cricket was phenomenal. The time he was moved on, I think maybe it was a bit too early, but the change of game style and the way we set up our middle order is heavy all-rounder base and guys who can clear the fence from ball one when they come in. So we've got some established batters at the top of the order that try and build big innings. And then after that, it's really about six hitters and really the guys who are successful throughout the BBL in clearing the pickets. George also does that pretty well. So in that sense, he was probably a bit stiff. But in this sense, this first game... Aaron Finch had to play a very different role to what he's normally asked to do. There was wickets early. Mark Wood made a real impression. Mm. And I love that he was given the free reign to bowl bounces. That's what England have lacked all summer. I was saying, you must have loved that. Yeah, well, it's not even about that. It's just about seeing Australia get a challenge thrown at them. Mm. You know, And it's what they haven't had all summer. I did a preview of the test, uh, the one-day series about a week and a half ago and after watching their warm-up game and commentating on that against the CA11, the thing they possess is three-faceted cricketers and guys who are dynamic take the game to an opposition. Jason Roy at the top of the order, Alex Hales, Sam Billings who didn't even make the team for this first game and then you've got Adil Rashid bowling lots of wrong-uns, Mark Wood bowling fast, Liam Plunkett the same. So... The makeup of their team is very attacking, and when Aaron Finch had to then, and batted beautifully, mind you, in doing so, had to realign the innings as opposed to being the aggressor, it probably put the Australians on the back foot, and 304 ended up being a very good total, but not as good as what it possibly could have been. Yeah, what's Aaron Finch like to bowl to? A nightmare. Absolute nightmare. (laughs) Why? Just puts the foot down and whacks you? or? Well, yeah, he can. And there's times where he can rein it in, even in four-day cricket. But there's also times where you first ball in a four-day game. I bowled to him this year in uh, North Sydney Oval, albeit a pretty small ground. And he hits a normal length ball with a red ball in four-day cricket over your head for six. And he doesn't need siders. He can get going from the, the get-go and score very quickly and take a game away from you, a la Gilchrist-type mould mm-hmm. uh, that we've seen so prominently for so many years. So... He's a, he's a dynamic cricketer, and it's great to see him in such great form. Would you back the Finch-Warner opening combination for the World Cup next year? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're dominant, world-class opening batters that can score regular hundreds in a big tournament and against any opposition on any in any conditions, IPL, you know, around the world, and particularly here in Australia. So, uh, absolutely. There's a lot of people who could do it as well, but these two are, are utter class. Yeah, I think the left right handed thing is a good thing at, at all levels of cricket. I think at international level, and you as an opening bowler you can add to this, probably doesn't make as much of a difference, but the bowler does have to adjust his line when they're 
rotating the strike. And now at the top level, they're pretty good at that. But it can put the bowler off his rhythm a little bit, can't it? Yeah, it can have an impact. And particularly one-day cricket, having a left-right when there's short boundaries a lot. When we play in England, Mm. there are so many postage stamp-sized grounds that having a left and right hand, when you go to the other end or if there's an off-spinner in an opposition team and you've got two left-handers in, it can it can really tame you down for a long period of time. But if there's a left and right-hand combination, there's no real avenue for a captain of an opposition team to say, okay, let's spin the ball away, have them hitting to the long boundary if they want to hit sixes. So I think that in itself changes the game plan of an opposition enough that it's beneficial. Yeah, and what about Australia's middle order? They've gone for Travis Head, Mitch Marsh and Marcus Stoinis for the last game. I mean, Glenn Maxwell's the notable omission there. What's your feeling on the the way they've structured the middle order? Do you think it's the right balance with Head, Mitch Marsh and Stoinis or do they need to get someone like Maxwell in there as well? Well, they're all very similar type cricketers. They all uh, are all-rounders. They all provide 10 overs with the ball if needed and they can all clear the fence comfortably on their day they can be a hundred off 50 balls type batters so Travis Head has been exceptional now in the one day side for a long period of time and when asked to open the batting last summer he did a really good job he's been able to bat at six and and his off spin is really crucial and probably one of the main reasons why they feel comfortable leaving Maxwell out of the team and then Mitch Marsh what an incredible comeback since his shoulder injury this summer who would have thought that he'd be in the test side at all after Hanscom had such a great summer last year and he's gone from strength to strength and looks like he's in a really good place with his batting. Can add that fourth seam, fifth seam option um, if needed. And then Stoinis, he got 60 off 40 balls to close out the innings the other day. He could easily open the batting, bat at three, come up the order if needed and uh, bowl 10 overs of, of really good pace with change-ups, bowls a nice bouncer as well. So... In Australian conditions, I think those three in particular are very well suited to our middle order and the way we shape our one-day team with our three big quicks and a zamper if, if needed. So the challenge is for Maxi then to force his way back in? Well, it just on Maxwell, he's averaged... I, th- I saw a press conference with Steve Smith the other day. He's averaged 20 over his last 15 to 21-day games. So they're sending a message to say, OK, we need you to be more consistent. The hard thing is for Maxi is that his game doesn't lend itself to being consistent because he's such a dynamic player. He takes risks. He can be a game breaker for you and score 100 off you know, 50 balls as he has done previously. The one thing he has done this summer, training aside, everything else aside because I'm not there and I don't see that, whenever he's walked on the park this summer, he's scored runs. So he scored a double hundred against us in shield cricket. He scored other hundreds and then had a really good one-day series as well. So he's doing what he thinks he can do uh, and he's having a relatively good tournament in the BBL as well. So if he, he looks, keeps putting up numbers, I'm sure he'll be in the he frame. He looks like a different cricketer this year. You know, the way he, he's playing, he seems to have really turned his game around and he looks more responsible. So yeah. he's sort of making the, the initial steps. Yeah, and I saw that he had a, a nice long chat to Steve Smith the other day. At the end of the day, it's between the Aussie selectors, the coaching staff and the captain to talk to their players and, and get the best out of them. And if that means dropping him at some point and then bringing him back in, hopefully revitalised, then hopefully he has a great result in the lead-up to a World Cup where he could be a key member. 
Mm, another player that's getting a lot of publicity at the moment is the Big Bash's leading run scorer, Darcy Short. He looks a very compact, powerful player, much in the same mould as David Warner. He might be someone that could be challenging for that top order if Australia needs more power at the top. Well, I don't, I don't think power is what we need. We've got plenty of power. Uh, it's just whether he is knocking the door down so hard that you can't leave him out. And I think in this T20 team that they're about to pick for the Tri-Series, I think we have to pick him. He's playing that well. He's just broken the record for the most amount of runs in a BBL in in history. And there's still a few games to go. Uh, he's had an incredible to- incredible tournament. Three, no- uh, three 50s, two of them 90s, and then 122 not out, the highest ever score in a BBL game. Plus, he bowls very good wrist spin, left arm in the Brad Hogg mould. He's a good fielder. He provides all three facets of the game, and and he's young. He's exciting. He's in great form. No better time to pick him. Yeah, see what he can do at the the top level in this tri-series. But I guess to my question before about the power, what I mean more is the attitude. Australia hasn't really evolved with the one-day game since the last World Cup. We still seem to be playing in the same sort of, I wouldn't say conservative but, but mode. But what's that based on? We've, we've had one game. Oh, no, I'm just talking last year. Okay, last year we played we played 16 ODIs. Yeah. We only won five. We lost yeah. nine, yeah. two washouts. So I think our record shows, and since the last World Cup, we've actually got one of the worst records in one-day cricket in yeah. the world. So I think... I know we haven't evolved while the rest of the world maybe has. Yeah, so uh, the ones that I particularly stand out in my mind is the India one-day series where we played over there. Yep. We consistently got good scores and Rohit Sharma, Virat Kohli and the like just were out of this world good in chasing them down. So I think you're probably right in the sense that we've been beaten a lot in one-day cricket. Is that because of our game style? I don't think so. I think it's because of the quality of opposition teams in their own backyard. And at the end of the day, when we've lost games at home, they've been close games and very rarely have we had our best, in inverted commas, team on the park. Last game, first game of the one-day international series, we had to rest Josh Hazelwood because of a huge test summer. We brought in AJ Ty, who's on debut, admittedly in great form throughout the Big Bash. But that's just one example of what happens in our one-day team of late. Mm. So we are constantly chopping and changing what is probably our best team to try and find the right combinations. And that next level of guys, say the 13 to 15, 16 best cricketers in the country. So uh, in, in answer to your question, probably in that sense, yes. But... In terms of attitude to one-day cricket, these guys are very, very classy, top-of-their-game, world-class cricketers, so I'm sure we'll figure it out. Yeah, look, I agree with that. I just think maybe we've chopped and changed too much. Now, I've got some stats to prove it. Since the last World Cup, and I'll ask you, is this too many, Australia have picked 37 different players to play for Australia in one-day cricket in, in under three years. So three-and-a-half teams... The, the most capped is actually Matt Wade, who played 47 of 51 games. Then you got Smith, Warner and Finch as the other players who played a lot of cricket in the last three years. But I know 37 players to me in three years seems too many. Yeah, it does. It's, it's also come on the back of, as I mentioned, a lot of guys needing rest. I know 
the South Africa one day series where it was Worrell, Manny uh, and a few others mm. and no Hazelwood, Stark or Cummins on that tour. It, it was about getting people ready for the Ashes, which was a priority on the calendar. So there's things like that that take precedence when it comes to this and need to be taken into context when it comes to the amount of games played and the amount of people who are playing them. But one thing I know is that I hope that we're getting to a point now with the Cameron White selection in particular, mm. guys who deserve to be in the squad will be in the squad. It's not a development team. It's not a, this guy could be great in five years' time. It needs to be the best players, the best performed domestic players, and the guys who can be difference makers at the international level. So hopefully that's a great sign from the selectors that they're going that way. Do you think someone like Cameron White's experience has been undervalued in the past that you know he's done so well in tight situations for Victoria consistently for the last three or four years he's he's almost unrecognizable to the player that played for Australia four years ago he's really matured do you think the selectors aren't valuing having someone like that in the team uh it I mean I don't know uh and I certainly can't speak on their behalf but what I do know over the past few years and particularly with someone like Cameron White batting at the top of the order for Victoria. Usman Kawaja, very, very good limited overs record over the past three seasons domestically. They both bat in the top three for their states. How do you get into our top three? Mm. Finch, Warner, Smith. Yeah, That's the issue for those players in terms of cracking into our international team. At the moment, it's very hard for a selector to say anyone in domestic cricket is going to be better on a given day than any of those three. So that that presents the biggest challenge to selectors. But what I love is that Cameron White could easily still fill that number five or six role and he's one of the smartest cricketers that I've ever come across in my career in terms of game strategy, understanding the game as it flows uh, and coming up with you know, how to play in that scenario. So uh, hopefully he can be a bit of a chameleon uh, mm. in that sense, and can still provide what he used to. Where he, When he first started, he was batting at six and bombing them out of the ground everywhere. I mean, he's got a good Australian one-day international record. I think I put uh, White and Bailey in that category. I, I think that, you know, we've forgotten how to win at one-day cricket. You know, we can say all the excuses that we like, you know, players resting, uh, rotation, trying to find the right combinations. But in the end... We've given up a lot of ground and we have to try and make it up now in the next year. I mean, this is England's record since the last World Cup. They've played 54 ODIs. They've won 35 and only lost 15. India have roughly the same record, played 53, won 34. New Zealand, South Africa, not far behind. So Australia's going into a lot of work to do ahead of the next World Cup to get their team together. Yeah, they do, but uh, it's certainly not like they aren't aware of that. And this process of, you know, a 5 ODI series now and also the T20 team, mm. inadvertently the T20 team has an impact on who's going to perform well in the ODI frame as well. There's a plan in place. There's World Cups are well planned for and well thought out in advance in terms of who's going to be there, what personnel they're going to go with and the team balance in terms of those all-rounders we discussed before. So they'll be working with combinations. They'll be looking at who our best death bowling options are. No doubt why AJ Ty is in the mix at the moment, mm. having seen his phenomenal efforts in the IPL and uh, for the Perth Scorchers. So, yeah, the only, the only thing I can say is from the outside looking in, they'll get there. 
good. We always do in big <laughs> tournaments. I hope so. Uh, I guess conditions are interesting to look ahead to for the the World Cup in that they'll be early in the summer in England, but when the ICC take control of the wickets, uh, they tend to be a bit drier and dustier, and we saw that in the Champions Trophy uh, last summer in England. So I guess maybe two spinners would be... Would Nathan Lyon be someone to really consider playing in, in the one-day internationals now? Well, I guess Australia have shown their hand over a long period of time now in terms of selections that they want to pick. They're going to pick all-rounders that bowl spin, finger spin in particular, like the Agar uh, who can bat, mm. and then the Travis Head and Glenn Maxwell who can provide dominant batting and then you know get through their overs yeah. in terms of off-spin. And then a wrist spinner if we're going to pick a, a straight-out spinner. Since probably playing a World Cup in India where Nathan Lyon was in the mix. So I think whilst you're right, it'll be places like Bristol and maybe up in Manchester where it spins a bit more traditionally where they might think about playing two spinners. But I think it's going to be all about the seam bowlers, who bowls best with the new ball. Uh, And we are exceptional at that. We didn't play well in the Champions Trophy last year. And no doubt there will have been some feedback and some chats about, okay, we need to get this right uh, come the World Cup because we didn't execute our plans very well in that tournament. So that's the stuff that I think will be spoken about. I hope Nathan Lyon gets back there because I love him. And he's, geez, he bowled well the other night for the Sydney Sixers, didn't he? Yeah, and look, he's putting his hand up for the IPL. Maybe if he squeezes in an IPL side, he can start to put his white ball credentials even further in the selector's mind. So England chased down that total by Australia really easily. Jason Roy, Joe Root. A couple of things came out of that match on Sunday. Cameron Wright was 12th man. Um, This is sort of an issue of the big bash and one day cricket, how they uh, fit together. There was some talk that Cameron White should have been able to play in a big bash match on the Friday night before the one day international two days before. Do you think that's asking too much of a player to play Friday night than Sunday? Uh, it's individually based, but if he was in the mix for selection on the Sunday, then no way. International cricket takes precedence over Big Bash. People need to get this through their minds. And it's become a public misconception all summer for the last couple of years that how annoying is it that this player has to leave and go and play international cricket and miss the finals for Big Bash? Big Bash is a domestic cricket tournament. Whilst it's phenomenal, it's great to watch, it's an outstanding product worldwide, the best domestic T20 competition there is, it is a feeder competition to prepare people playing international cricket. International cricket takes precedence whenever you're wearing that baggy green or canary yellow, it it takes precedence. So if he was in the mix for selection, then not a chance should he be playing on the Friday leading into a Sunday, risking injury, changing his mind, you know, in terms of how he's feeling out in the middle, those sort of things, unless the player requests to do so for form reasons. Like he really wants a hit. But look, I see yeah. that side of it. What about now they're talking about a lot of the Big Bash stars are going to go and play in this T20 tri-series, which starts just as the Big Bash finals start. So you could have, you know, the Hurricanes lose a couple of their star players right at the crucial time. Now, I know what you just said, but I want to push it a little bit that fans rock up all summer to the Big Bash teams. They support, they spend their money, they, they really get behind their teams. Mm. And then 
when their star players are sort of taken away at the finals. And I think this used to happen in rugby league. You know, the Kangaroos used to go on tours and you'd lose all the best players before the finals and it sort of takes away from the competition. Do you think something has to be done to at least have the best players at the pointy end of the tournament? Uh, So I'll give you two answers. One is suck it up. Fans should be fans of their team regardless of who's pulling on the jersey. I like it. Uh, And secondly, the international stars that go and play during that finals period have done so for the since the inception of the BBL. Nothing's different. It's just the reality of the schedule. And inadvertently, when stars get picked out of their BBL teams to go and play T20 cricket, stars will be coming back from the test arena that don't play T20 cricket for their country and add an influx into their team that may not have been there previously. So this is a job for GMs around the country well in advance of an international summer to plan their rosters around who's going to be available, who won't be available, and having the best possible team come the finals and doing your best to get there when you have the chance. So uh, at the end of the day, it's not about this is ridiculous, there's Darcy Short's not going to be available for the finals. Like, at the end of the day, fans should be saying how amazing is it that he's now going off to play for Australia through performances from our team. The fact that it's in the finals, it's not ideal, but there's no way around it. So fans should stop whinging about it. Well, good answer, Trent. I sort of see both sides of it as a big fan of the Big Bash. As do I. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, so do I. It would be great to have every player available but it's just never been the case and it never will be the case. So just get used to it. Yeah. Hopefully they can find a small window sometime in the future to block off some cricket for the Big Bash. I mean, the IPL gets two months to have all the plays there. The Big Bash could get something. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to hear from Mike Gadding, who I asked after the MCC World Cricket Committee, what frustrates that committee the most? the Olympics you know it's one of those um, one of those things that has frustrated me and the fact that uh, you know we, we want to see cricket in the Olympics is is, is, uh, is something that will help promote the game around the world uh, lots of governments could also then contribute money into the playing coffers for, for those countries that play uh, it just seems a, a great way of just promoting the number two sport in the world uh, and to me it's uh, a little bit frustrating that we're still sort of um, talking about trying to get into the Olympics when I think most people would like to get into the Olympics because they see the same benefits as, as, as I do for the game and as some most of our committee do, I think. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. That was Mike Gadding talking about the Olympic movement and cricket and I'm here with Trent Copeland. And Trent, what do you think about cricket moving into the Olympics? I mean, I'd love to see it there, and it's an interesting point that Gat makes. I've done a few talks with him, actually, in the last few weeks, and I've enjoyed hearing his perspective on the game, where England are at, but also his role predominantly with the MCC and and where the game sits. So it's great to hear people so passionate about it and, and wanting things to change. The thing I will say is that some of the sports that have been included in the Olympics, you know, if there's three on three basketball in the Olympics, cricket should be in there. Yeah, or golf's in the Olympics. I mean, that's one of the... Well, golf Golf is golf. If three-on-three, three, which is not the, the sport itself in basketball, can be in the Olympics as a watered-down version, 
then we should be putting more of the actual traditional sports that are worldwide sports. It's not a unique sport. It's not a no one around the world plays it. Uh, and there's a male and female counterpart, which is needed in the Olympics. So I think it's got all the merit of being there. It was in the Commonwealth Games, you know, I, I remember in Malaysia, and I think it has merit, certainly. So hopefully it does happen. Yeah, I think as well, as you say, T20 cricket is the perfect vehicle now to take cricket around the world. And if the Olympics is, is something that can help sort of grow the game, then they should definitely do it. Mike Gatting said when he was asked about scheduling that, you know, it's once every four years. So they should be able to find time to block off effectively two weeks to play in the T20 tournament. So, you know, they're looking, they were talking about 2028 as being the possible start time for cricket in the Olympics. So I've got my fingers crossed and I'm sure plenty of Aussie cricketers would love a gold medal. Oh, wouldn't they? It would be exceptional. And and the fact that it's in the pipeline must be exciting for you know, all those cricketers out there that are probably in their early teens to have that as a goal. It's, you know, not only are we striving to get a, a baggy green, which is the pinnacle for any cricketer, but also if you can wrap a gold medal around your neck, how good would that be? Definitely. There was some talk in the last week about drug testing and that'll obviously come into it if you want to go to the Olympics, you have to uh, meet the standards Um whether that would be something that would stop it. Do you ever get tested for yeah. PEDs? Uh, yeah, like it's part of the process. WADA have uh, an international doping code that we sign off on and, and Cricket Australia have their own anti-doping policy. We get tested, I would say, you know, on a monthly basis and it's random, but it happens every cricketer in the country will get tested three to four times a year without doubt. Wow. All right, Trent, now I want to ask you about some of your experiences playing first-class cricket in Australia. You've had an exceptional start to the season, took six for 22 in what, the opening game of the season, six for 24. Then you had to sit out the next game because Hazelwood, Stark and Cummins came back. I guess the first question is, how is it feel when you you know bowl so well and then you have to sit on the sidelines in the next game? Well, Stark and Cummins both played that game in Adelaide. So it, it wasn't like all three of them came back and, and then I was sort of shafted. It was certainly, you know, I was playing well and in, in the forefront of New South Wales's plans and, and doing well in that first game was fantastic but I'm also a realist that you know we played an extra batter at Hurstville uh, for the different conditions compared to Adelaide Oval with a pink ball and then we also had Josh Hazelwood come back who's a pretty handy bowler not bad <laughs> so it, it, it's disappointing to miss out when you're in some good form and certainly to be 12th man amongst the caliber of basically a full strength Australian side was what we put out on the field uh, anyone who was in that side had played test cricket, I think, bar Daniel Hughes batting at six. So as well as the game in Adelaide where we had pretty much the same. So it's part of the reality of playing for New South Wales. It's always been the way. Since I made my debut when we had the likes of Bracken and Brett Lee, Stuart Clark, when I was playing with them, and then at times you would have to miss out. It's just part of it. Now, you mentioned your debut. So you did all right on your debut. You took, what, eight for in your first first class <laughs> innings? Already we've heard you've had pretty good starts to cricket. Four off your first ball at Test Cricket. <laughs> Wicket with your second ball in Test Cricket. Eight far on your first class debut. Tell us about your first ball in Test Cricket. Obviously, you a lot of pressure and build up to that first ball. In Test Cricket? In first class cricket. Oh, first class cricket, yeah. So I was, I, leading into the game, I got sort of plucked out of grade cricket. I've been doing well uh, for my club the mighty St George and uh, I'd taken sort of 60 wickets in consecutive seasons for 
the first grade side. I got a call from Brian Tabor whilst coaching on a Thursday night uh, down in my local area in the Sutherland Shire. And uh, he said, Trent, you need to come to the SCG, grab some training gear. You're in the Shield squad to play against Queensland at the SCG. Simon Cadditch would like to meet you and have a bit of a chat uh, along with Matthew Mott about game plans and, and the team will be selected on the morning of the match. So came in for training, taking in the environment of an SCG, putting my kit in the SCG home change room, walking out and looking at the ground with the likes of you know, Simon Cadditch, Phil Hughes, David Warner, Steve Smith uh, and the bowlers that I mm-hmm. mentioned just previous. Incredible tingles down the spine, you know, being presented a baggy blue at the SCG, very special. What uh, was Cat like, Simon Cadditch, when you came into the team environment? Because he, he does come across as a great bloke. So, so what he was he is, like as a skipper? See, he is probably my favourite human being in cricket sense. Wow. He, every time I see him, it's like we're hanging out like we were on the cricket field um, the whole time. He always had your back when it came to being on the field. Uh, he backed you in the sense of making you feel like you could express yourself. Um, and that's a really special thing for a captain. Um, but ultimately, he was just a good guy. He had a very even keel, didn't get too angry, didn't get too excited uh, and provided a good environment to succeed. So Magnificent timer of the ball. I used to just love the way he stroked the ball through cover with minimum of fuss. Yeah, perennially un- underrated uh, the way he batted. And, and the modern game, I think particularly in one-day cricket, he was exceptional at the top of the order for Australia, batting with Gilchrist and Mm. numerous others. But he sort of got shafted when, much like George Bailey, uh, sort of almost still at their peak. Just put a line through you at some point. Yeah, and at at the end of the day, let's get back to, you know, my bowling on that first first morning. First-class cricket. My first ball in first-class cricket bounced twice before it got to Daniel Smith, the keeper. (laughs) Honestly, I thought to myself... Every single slipped out or something. No, it just didn't. They must have thought from watching me in the nets the day before to where it was going to bounce on the the game day. You know, they must have been thinking, "Who is this joker? <laughs> Let's get him out of here somehow." But uh, it, my whole first session, I had a few shouts. Queensland batted really well, and I did, I was wicketless at lunch. Um, it wasn't until the second session where I managed to get one to nip back and hit Ryan Broad on the on the knee and back uh, the back knee and uh, LBW was the first dismissal and the rest is history. Yeah, seven more. So eight for on your first class debut. You've taken almost 300 first class wickets now, I think 270 something. Tell me, there's a push for just fast bowlers in Australia. You've got to have pace to get wickets. You've bucked the trend at a, a state level. And, you know, Chad Sayers, another one who's done exceptionally well for South Australia. Do, do, how does it make you feel when you hear Liam and, and other selectors say you need raw pace when sort of evidence would suggest that you can get it done with really good, accurate bowling? Uh, so there's a few different trains of thought. And, and one, I hate to sound like it's a personal agenda about this, but, uh, you know, and it certainly isn't. But, at but the I end want of the your d- personal insight, so. Yeah, no, but I'm saying my opinion on it can sometimes sound like it's coming from a whinging perspective, yeah. but at the end of the day, it doesn't phase me. I'm really happy with where I'm at. I'm stoked that I've got a baggy green. It, it, it doesn't bother me. But one thing that is key and is paramount in any conditions anywhere in the world is being able to move the ball. So pace is, ex- is essential when you're in Australia, the ball doesn't move much in that middle phase, and then it goes reverse swing. You know, pace is essential. But 
a bowling attack is not all about pace. It is about moulding bowlers together that can make the most out of any conditions. Um, and I think that's something that I've, I think I, I like to think that I've done pretty well in my career. And it's a little bit annoying to just say a flat-out rule is if you don't bowl on average 140 plus, then you're not in consideration. At the end of the day, there's some bloody skillful cricketers out there that are doing that and doing that successfully, um, you know, taking wickets regularly. I'm not talking about me, but other guys out there like the Chad Sayers, mm. but also lots of guys in England. We're so fortunate at the moment that we've got guys in our test side in Cummins, Hazelwood and Stark, James Pattinson, Nathan Coulter-Nile and J- uh, Jackson Bird just underneath that bracket in terms of pace that do the accuracy, the moving of the ball, as well as being exceptional with their pace. So we're so fortunate in that sense. Uh, it's going to be hard to, for anyone to crack into that bowling side after the way they perform this summer and then the next, hopefully, 10 years. Yeah, and the other thing that people don't realise is it's actually very hard to just crack into the New South Wales side oh, yeah. as a bowler. There's so many bowlers around the country that started off in New South Wales and have gone interstate to get opportunities at first-class level. Do you still, say, look ahead to the 2019 Ashes, which will be played in conditions that would hypothetically suit your bowling? Yeah. Do you still go, OK, I'm going to work my tail off to try and get there whatever happens with the selectors that's out of my hands but that's still my ambition uh no and and the reason being is the moment i've learned throughout my career the moment you start focusing ahead of the level that you're at or setting goals that you're out of your control you start to you know start worrying about things like performance and oh i didn't i need to take more wickets here or you know i'm not bowling well enough to be in that mold so my focus is solidifying success for New South Wales. But at the end of the day, if I'm bowling well, uh, as with anyone else around the country, if you're bowling well and you're winning the shield, you're always going to be in with a chance. I think it would make sense, given how we performed in the last Ashes, to have someone in the mould of a Chad Sayers or a Jackson Bird at the forefront of our team and our selectors' minds to play the role of accuracy and, you know, swinging the ball around in England. The one thing I do think, though, is that our bowling group that we had for this Ashes are going to be very, very good in those conditions as well. So, yeah, I mean, it would be amazing to to get there and still play a role, but my focus is I'd love to just take wickets for New South Wales and I just want to win another shield. It's the best feeling. Have you ever played in the Big Bash in the past? Yeah, yeah. I played the first four seasons. And and why – do you know why you, you're not playing at the moment? Is it your your style it's of bowling? choice. Choice? Okay, so, I mean, I wouldn't be, you know, in an 11 every game uh, and I may not even have played a game this summer or the summer previous. Well, I'm going to um, get a butt in there for you. I've seen some of the bowlers – and you can't say this – but I've <laughs> seen some of the bowlers playing for the Sixers and the Thunder and you're – Definitely would be able to crack into those sides. Oh, so continue. I, well, I'm not going to name names. but I certainly disagree on some, some levels. But the, the thing that I have found really beneficial the last two seasons in, in particular has been the fatigue that comes with running around as a 17th or 18th squad member in a BBL team, training in the nets, doing the running, throwing balls, travelling and, and still thinking cricket 24-7. Uh, is that you feel really, oh, I guess, 
it's almost like a jet lag feel when you get back to shield cricket. And the last two summers I've been revitalised at the end of the break. Played a little bit of grade cricket, which I love doing, captaining St George. I was just away on a 10-day holiday from Boxing Day to the 3rd uh, or the 4th of January with my wife in New York. It was minus 6 to minus 20 degrees over there, snowing, ex- exceptional place. Just getting away, not thinking about cricket at all. And then coming back, training the house down, ready for the back half of the Shield season, changed the way that I perform in those five games closing out the summer. So that's the main reason. I mean, there's a financial downside to not playing, <laughs> obviously. But I also think that I've got to be realistic at this point in my career and focus on what's important. And, and for me, it's you know, repaying the faith to New South Wales and trying to win Sheffield Shields. And that's what I think is best. Well, Trent, thank you so much for coming on Cricket Unfiltered. Now, you also, for News Corp, do the Supercoach podcast with Tommy Sangster. When does that start up? Well, it's already started. We've started pumping out team preview articles and uh, there's probably already five to six out there now and there's plenty more coming around the corner this week. So we're getting... Supercoach, put it into your podcast app, subscribe... Absolutely. And be ready for the league season. Yeah, league season, but I'm also writing content this year for AFL Supercoach as well uh, for the Herald Sun guys down in Melbourne. So it's Supercoach is a great game. It's it's It gives you access and interest into teams that you wouldn't normally... It's like fantasy football, really. It's the... yeah, That's exactly what it is. Yep, and it gives you an interest in teams you wouldn't normally care about um, other than your own. So I love it. It's it's great fun external to cricket. It gives you you know something to focus on outside of what's going on in your normal day-to-day life. My problem with those is I just get so obsessed with them. Oh, <laughs> you know, it just takes over my life. My wife's like, you're on the computer again. My kids are like, Dad, where are you? How do you, how do you find time for it? You're playing cricket you're training you're riding and then you've got to keep up with all the teams yeah so it's it gets tough uh for this last two months of the cricket season but then most of the off season it's is where i sort of kick into doing super coach and i i guess it's i travel so much i'm away all the time i'm in hotel rooms you know by myself and you know it's a good way to pass the time it gives me an interest outside of I guess playing PlayStation like other people do or going out all the time and things like that. But I'm at home with my wife and dogs and having a great time. And then if I'm away, I'm doing this. So Excellent. It's great. Well, listeners, um, you can keep up with all that at the dailytelegraph.com.au. Uh, you can also subscribe to Supercoach and subscribe. If you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe to Cricket Unfiltered on your podcast apps. Well, Trent, thanks so much for coming in. Good luck for the rest of the Shield season, and hopefully we can catch up again sometime. Cheers. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Trent. Listeners, we're going to take a quick break, then I will be back with Sam Landsberger, cricket reporter from the Herald Sun in Melbourne. We're going to take you around the Big Bash, give you a full update, and find out what went wrong with the Melbourne Stars this season? Back in a moment. Shorts on 49. It's away to the sweeper. And that is a third Big Bash 50 this season to Darcy Short to go with 100 as well. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Manners, and joining me now to give a full Big Bash update, I've got one of the Herald Sun's finest from Melbourne, Sam Landsberger. How are you, Sam? 
Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. My New Year's resolution was to be nicer to Victorians, so uh, <laughs> I thought, you know, I'd better get a Victorian on the podcast before it's too late. Very, very humbled to be here in Arnstad. It's a very good New Year's resolution. You've got 11 months to go to stick out of this. We know, we're there to be the love down here, especially in the big bash, because the Melbourne teams are struggling. Yeah, so let, let's start with the ladder. The Big Bash ladder per Scorchers on top with 12 points. Then you've got the Strikers, the Hurricanes on 10 points, the Melbourne Renegades on 8 points, and the Brisbane Heat also on 8 points. So a five-way tussle for the top four. But the Melbourne Stars, two points from seven games. Where did it go wrong for the Stars this year, Sam? Oh, where do you start, really? Um, the, the batting's just been uh, absolutely horrendous. I mean, they're... They've got such a world-class middle order. You've got Kevin Peterson, you've got Glenn Maxwell, Pete Hanson came out from the ashes. Uh, it's just been failure after failure. Um, there's just been no cohesion. They're bereft of confidence. But if you if you look at the Melbourne Stars' form, they've 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 only won the one game for the year. But the troubles probably stretch back to last year. I think if you actually extend the form line beyond this season, they've lost nine of their past ten games. I think it is now. So that's a horrible winning run in any sport. But whatever they've done this year, that it hasn't worked. Ben Dunk, they brought across from the Adelaide Strike. And he's been the two-time leading run scorer in the Big Bash, and he's made one score for the summer. He's failed to reach double digits. Batting's been deplorable. Um, they've lost wickets in the power play. It's basically just been the same old story every game. Wickets in the power play, unable to recover, um, and then not enough runs on the ball to defend, and they've been unable to take wickets for the ball. So honestly, I spoke to John Hastings, the captain, after the loss to the Sixers last night on uh, on Tuesday night, and he just said, yeah, we, we can't have a winner in any part of the field. So it's hard to really give anyone a pass mark for the Melbourne Stars this summer. Yeah, it's been a disaster. The Melbourne Renegades, they're in a, a precarious position now, just holding on to a top four spot. Do you think they will make it to the semifinals? Look, I think it, it's going to go down to the wire. I think they played the Brisbane Heat in what's the last game of the summer um, up at the Gabba on January 27. That could well be for fourth position. And if, if the Renegades do miss out, geez, they will be kicking themselves. So they had the Perth courses on toast last week over at, at the Waco at the Furnace and Brad Hogg dropped Ash and Turner um, and it really was the turning point in the game. The Scorchers came back and won from nowhere um, and then uh, the Renegades dropped their heads and then dropped the derby against Stars last Friday night to, you know, that from being in a winning position against the Scorchers, suddenly they've dropped two in a row. Um, and then they always knew they were going to lose Aaron Finch, but then to lose Cameron White as well, which they did, didn't expect, you know, suddenly the, that top order batting's taken a fair hit. Uh, they're, they're still around the mark. I think they probably need to win two of the last three to get in. They face the, the Thunder in Canberra, um, the Strikers in Melbourne, and the Heat at the Gabba. Two wins should get you in. Uh, but it is precariously placed, whereas it looked pretty comfortable this time last week. Do you think it is all over for Brad Hogg? Do you think this season could be his last? I think he was pretty close to pulling the pin. He had knee surgery last year. Um, it was probably touch and go for a while whether he would get back. Look, I think he turns 47 next month. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's incredible he's still going around. That said, you know, we spoke about the drop catch a little bit before. Um, that was really unfortunate. And then he, his last ball that night against Perth got whacked for 13 runs because he delivered a no ball, which was hit for six, and the free ball, and then the free hit was hit for six as well. But if, if you sort of, if you excuse that, he's actually bowling pretty well. You know, I think he's taken wickets against every team except for the Stars this summer. 
Um, they are coming out pretty well, but you know, next season being ten months away, that's uh, that's a long way away. Uh, you certainly wouldn't you know lock him in for, for next season for uh, for a while just yet. But I've got no doubt he can bowl out this summer and and do a reasonable job. I'll back him in for the rest of this summer, but yeah, there's no doubt this could be the last time we've seen. All right, now I want to ask you about a contentious issue in the Big Bash. We saw Adam Voges suspended from the Perth Scorchers <laughs> last game for not being able to get through the overs in the allotted time. So I guess each captain has two strikes. He got lost his two strikes and therefore missed the game. I think this is absolutely ludicrous from Cricket Australia. There are too many fines being handed down for the women's big bash and the men's big bash. I don't think they're giving players enough time. And I also think they're not giving the game enough time to breathe. When you get these really tense finishes, if it gets drawn out a little bit longer, that actually is better for the product. So I think they've got it wrong. Uh, Do you think they need to change the rules for next summer? Yeah, it's absolutely important, isn't this? I mean, this has been one of the talking points all summer. It probably was last year as well when Brendan McCallum um, received a one-match suspension. Look, I'm probably in the opposite camp a little bit. I think T20 is fast, exciting cricket. Let's move the game along. I'm not sure whether the, the, the punishment fits the crime. Um, I think it is, I mean, this is a tournament all about the draw card. Last year when, you know, the MCG fans were robbed of Steve McCallum, that wasn't the right out, outcome for mine. Bo just missing a game isn't the right outcome for mine. I'd like to see teams punished. So, you know, whether you, you lose part of your net run rate or whether even you, you got premiership points, I think that's a, a fairer resolution. But I do like that CA is strong on this on moving the game along. I think, you know, you know this, is, this is sort of the fast food product of, of this sport. We don't want to see it dragging its heels. So a quick game is a good game, but we want to see the best players out there. Well, Dan Christian from the Hurricanes tweeted a couple of days ago that IPL games are given 90 minutes per innings. In T20 internationals, you're given 85 minutes per innings. But in the Big Bash, you're only given 80 minutes. So I think they at least need to add another five minutes to that to be in line with the international playing conditions. Yeah, that's probably fair, Carl. And I think the WBBL is, is even fewer. I think that's about 75 minutes. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the women certainly have to scamper through the games. But, yeah, that, that's probably a, a fair call as well. My issue, that said, I mean, you know, while there have been a few strike standards down this year, the majority of captains can get their, the overs bowled in the allotted time. And there are allowances given for any special circumstances. So, yeah, it's a fair call from Dan. And I've got no doubt this is something that they will review again. They did review it after last summer. They decided to keep the same rules in place. But it's probably a question that needs to be asked again for, for next year. All right, next fine handed out by Cricket Australia. And I'm actually on Cricket Australia's side with this one. They fined Ryan Harris. I think it was a suspended fine for when he tweeted that the third umpire's decision on the Alex Ross obstructing the field decision against the Hurricanes. Harris tweeted that the decision was embarrassing and shocking. And look, I think Cricket Australia were were right to sanction Harris in this case. He works for Cricket Australia And it probably, he just went too far. I mean, the umpires did the best they could. It was a tough decision. It prompted a lot of debate. But for a former player to label it embarrassing and shocking was probably too much. Bit of a fair slap, you know, not much of a slap on the wrist. I think it was a a suspended $3,000 fine. So I don't think Ron Harris would be losing too much sleep over that sanction. But... Gee, that was a that was an, an extraordinary finish to a game. Uh, some of the great, compelling TV afterwards as you know, Brisbane Heat captain Brendan McCallum and George Bailey went, went at it on the field. That was a 
yeah, just a bizarre moment in the season and one of the poorest points again. Um, Harris probably went a little bit too far on Twitter. Yeah, well, I think when, you, when you're emotional, you're probably best to stay off social media until the next morning and see, and see how you feel then. But, yeah, you, you certainly can't have CA employees you know, lashing out like that at, at officials who are clearly trying to do that the best they can. But, yeah, what a talking point that was. I think plenty plenty would agree with Harris that they probably got it wrong. Could cost the Brisbane head a final spot as well. So it might be one we can revisit next week. Yep, and I'm sure Harris has a bit of tweet regret. Uh, there's also another fine come out of that, that Joe Burns was reported for using language or a, a gesture that is obscene, offensive or insulting during a match. Now, Joe Burns denied the offence and pleaded not guilty, but match referee Bob Stratford concluded he was guilty. Burns was whacked with a $6,000 fine. I mean, there were just fines raining down from Cricket Australia. Look, I didn't see what Burns did. Uh, I don't know if if you've seen any footage of it. None's out there. But I guess at a family-friendly environment, you've got to be careful what gestures or language you use in those circumstances. Yeah, look, I haven't seen what Joe did. But uh, as you say, it is a family-friendly sport. You know, it's marketed at and new audiences, you know, females and, and younger children, so especially with stunt mics on, on all the time or whatnot and playing microphones, you just really be bashing. You've just got to be careful and um, hopefully we can avoid anything like that going forward. Now let's turn our attention to the two biggest grounds in Australia, the MCG and the SCG. The MCG was labelled poor after the... Boxing Day test match. Has there been many recriminations and people wandering around wondering what they're going to do with the state of the MCG? Uh, not too much since uh, since the ICC gave her that report. It was used last night for the Big Bash game and Glenn Maxwell made an interesting comment after he was dismissed. He basically said, you know, they'd overcompensated from the test match and it was very hard to play on. It was very uneven and very unpredictable. But, geez, Max's comments looked pretty silly an hour later when Nick Maddinson was going berserk on it. So it looked like a batting paradise for the Sixers out there. Not too much talk since the test match. They got that one wrong. Hopefully, you know, they compare a better deck next summer. Uh, but it's been an okay surface for the Big Bash. Um, you know, about average sort of scores posted there in line with previous years. But, it's just so hard to clear the rope in, in 2020 cricket, especially this summer. We've seen you know the emergence of of the, of the tactics from captains to take pace off the ball and ball more spin. You know, uh, unless you're, you're a real powerful batsman, players are struggling to clear the rope. So that's the biggest issue with the, with the J at the moment. It's too hard to hit the fence. Yeah, well, I thought the pitch looked pretty good last night actually against the Sixers. It had some bounce and some life. It was a shame it wasn't like that for the Test match. But look, the MCG is not alone because. At Saturday, I turned up to the SCG to see a WBBL game, which led into a, a Big Bash game, and they'd closed the stadium, and you, you basically couldn't get in because a little bit of the roof had, and I haven't been able to confirm this, it had either fallen off or had come loose, and therefore they had to remove the bit of the roof before they could let anyone into the ground. So, I mean, that's that is- unbelievable. Sorry, yeah, sorry, Kate. Okay. Yeah, that, that is extraordinary. <laughs> Come on, Sydney, what's going on up there? Fix your grounds, get get them right. Are we going to demolish the stadium and get a new one? Might be time to hurry those plans along. Yeah, you know, if you get your house in order. <laughs> <laughs> Thought you'd say something like that. And it's funny, it's from a new stand. I mean, it's the, one of the, the newest stand in the ground. So I don't know how there's a bit missing, but I guess what was scary is that that, that bit of roof 
if it had happened a week earlier, there was 40,000 people there for the test every day, you could have had some serious problems. Or, you know, a few days later for the One Day International coming up this weekend. So that's a real concern. And it was just weird. Like they had the whole, people were queuing up outside. You couldn't get in. Um, Players were told to get off the field. Um, So as you say, I guess the MCG and the SCG need to get their house in order. Yeah, well, and we're about to be overtaken. The uh, the new stadium in Perth opens up in a couple of weeks as well. So, geez, if that's the uh, if that's the shining glory in Australian sport, then you've got Adelaide over as well. We we both want to need to uh, to lift our act. Yeah, they might play the AFL Grand Final in um, Perth next year. Oh, let's let's not be silly. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to get you going. Absolutely All right. Not. Now, I want to. Um, <laughs> ask you about an article you wrote about Dwayne Bravo. Now, you had a good chat with Bravo by the sounds of things. What's he like to talk to? Yeah, he was a pleasure. I, we did a bit, a bit of a feature on him last Friday's paper before the derby, and well, it was quite funny. We uh, we met him at 11 o'clock in a cafe, and he was wiping the sleep out of the eyes. I said, mate, what time do you usually get up? He said, 1 o'clock, and you know, far too early for him. He's a very, very cool, laid-back, chilled customer. He was great to chat to, and the, the, the funniest part of that interview, I thought, is he's got three kids and they're all named after himself. He's got a, a 13-year-old daughter, Dwayne um, a son who's four years old, Dwayne Bravo Jr., and then a, a second little boy who's four months old who's called Dwayne. So, yeah, a pretty funny bloke. Great to chat to. Great character of the game. Doesn't take it too seriously. But he's an absolute superstar. I think he's the first player to take 400 wickets in, in 2020. Um, in the world, so yeah, well, one of the greats of the game in this format, and yeah, sort of what you see is what you get. Pretty, pretty, pretty laid back customer. Yeah, so he's obviously got a massive ego if he's named three kids after himself. <laughs> uh, but he said in your article that he thinks the Big Bash is too long, and he pointed out a ten day gap between Renegades games in this competition, which to me just doesn't make sense. How you can be playing? A ten-game competition over eight weeks and have a ten-day gap just doesn't seem right, and it doesn't seem fair because it sort of sucks the momentum out of your play. Yeah, look, I, I think ten days is way too long. This is a, a little bit of a quirk. I mean, the Renegades played last Friday night, and now you know before their next game, there's a couple of ODIs fed into the fixtures, so there's a couple of breaks, but. I mean, you've got blokes like Dwayne Bravo who, you know, in all seriousness, would love to would love to be at home with his three kids. He said he spends about thirty days with them a year. He's going to sit around, you know, on Chapel Street in Melbourne for ten days waiting to, to play a game in a, you know, in, in, a, in a short hit and run tournament. That, that that's ludicrous. So, I think cricket Australia is likely to to increase next summer. I think we're likely to go from ten games to to maybe twelve, but. That shouldn't mean extending the season. That should mean more double-headers. You know, why not play a double-header most of the time? Um, let, let's roll through these games. If they're not physically demanding, let's, let's get it over with nice and quick. Yeah, I love double-headers of the Big Bash. There's nothing like knowing you've got sort of six or seven hours of Big Bash cricket in front of you when those double-headers came on. So I'd be all for more of them, especially in the summer holidays. Yeah, exactly. I, was, I, I think there's probably a little bit of a hesitation at the moment because the, the earlier you, you're playing games, you're... You're taking them away from from prime time television, but so what? Um, you know, if we're fair income and we and we want to promote this game to kids, well, you know, let's not show let's not show games at seven forty at night after you know the, the, the project finishes on Channel Ten and have them dragging out to you know beyond eleven o'clock or you know when, when there's a late game in Perth, you know, towards one a.m. on, on the Eastern States. I mean, you know, we, we we can't sell it. We can't sell a falter. To that extent, let's get more double-headers in. Um, let's get it, you know, as we said before, with the overrates. A quick game is a good game. A quick tournament is a good tournament. So 
more double headers, more games, but yeah, nice and compact played. You speak of a quick game a good game. You also spoke to Dwayne Bravo about 10-10 cricket. I was pretty sceptical when I heard of 10-10 cricket. I still am, but I mean, I was I felt the same about 2020 cricket. So tell me, what did Bravo say about the 10-10 concept? I'll be totally honest. I, hadn't, I wasn't aware of this before he alerted me last week. Uh, we, we were chatting about the future of 2020 cricket, and he was fair dinkum. He, he played in... In the first ever league, which was held in Dubai last month in December, uh, it was a round robin over four days. Basically, a game lasts 90 minutes. You can bowl two overs each, so, so five five bowls can bowl two overs. And ten over cricket, we're seeing scores of about sort of you know between 100 and 130 posted. Kyron Pollard hit 40 off 12 balls with six sixes. So you know it was ballistic cricket. Bravo said it was good for batting, not so much for bowling. And, but he really enjoyed it. He, he gave the corner a big tip, said it was a success, expects next year to be bigger and better, and said in five years this will be a, you know, a legitimate sporting contest. That said, he said 2020 cricket is here to stay, but this format can settle up next to it, which is staggering from my point of view. I mean, it seems too short on the surface, but as, as you as you very rightly pointed out, it's 2020 cricket when all we've been used to and grown up with was 50 over cricket. So who knows what the future holds, but Bravo, who knows... Um, the short format of the game better than anyone. He was a big fan. Well, we will see. I, I'm going to wait until I've actually watched the 10-10 game before I um, <laughs> make a judgment. All right, Sam, last question before I let you go. Tell me about Mackenzie Harvey. So he's, what, 17? He's been called up for the Renegades. He's Ian Harvey's nephew. Have you heard or seen anything about this kid, this prodigy? Yeah, no, he's a very, very exciting talent. He's still at school. Uh, he's a schoolboy, as you said. He's 17, and he's the next big thing. Uh, you know, according to all reports, I haven't seen much of him bad, but those who have rave about him, uh, he's been called into the Renegade squad as replacement for Aaron Finch. He's obviously with the one-day team. He's a, he's a marvellous batsman. He played against a full-strength English side last recently, uh, a full-strength English one-day side in a 50-over game, and you know, whack 59 or 48 balls. Jeez, he would have been handy the MCG on Sunday when, mm. when, we, uh, when we got beaten comprehensively. He hits it really hard. Um, he, you know, he's a smart cricketer for his age, and I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of him in, in years to come. It would be incredible if he broke through and played for the Renegades. I'm not sure he will get a game, but even being around that squad, um, the experience he'll, he'll learn will be fantastic. So, yeah, I think he's one to, uh, to, to, to write down and follow that name very closely. Mackenzie Harvey, he's certainly one to watch. I think you're right, Sam. And, look, thanks for your time and coming on Cricket Unfiltered. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter? Uh, my uh, Twitter is at uh, Sam Lanceberger. Uh, you search me there just my full name. Give us a follow and we can call Big Bash all the time. And you will be... Uh, covering the Big Bash and then heading into the AFL for the Herald Sun so you can find all of Sam's stuff there. Thanks, Sam. Take care. Enjoy the rest of the Big Bash. Hopefully we can catch up for another chat. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another week, listeners. Thanks so much to Trent Copeland and Sam Landsberger for coming on the podcast. Remember, if you've got time, please rate the show and tell all your cricket-loving friends about the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Amenas. You can also find my weekly cricket column at thedailytelegraph.com.au online. And I'll be back next week with another show.